We will be in Hebrews 11. While you're turning there, Jim was telling me at at, uh, dinner one of the things that he enjoys about being with you as a group is he kind of gave it a word picture. I know Jim never does that, gives word pictures, but he gave me a word picture kind of oil lamps. So you all are like oil lamps and uh, the oil being the spirit and and the the flames are bright and warm and and, he kind of went like this. I great because I get to do this all the time, you know. And then... uh, Rachel began talking about someone ripping one during worship, and it's a whole kind of different heat there. My oil lamp right. was burning bright that night. <laughs> Not sure that's the kind of fire we're looking for, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I was listening to Jim share that, and I immediately got a picture, and I, I shared it with him. One of the things that I think is so important about where you're at in life, at this stage of life, is that yeah, you you can burn very brightly, and and passion is right is right on the uh, right on the surface there, and kind of a willingness to just be real and genuine. And what life tends to do is the older you get, the less you're willing to do that because you find that when you're real and genuine with people, sometimes you get slapped down for it or sometimes you get hurt for it. And and it only takes a few times before you start to go, well, I'm not going to be genuine with everybody. I'll only be genuine with those I know it's safe to be genuine with. And so those oil lamps, if you can imagine this, I've got a couple of these at home, just little glass lamps. You can see the oil in them. they got that little screw on the side of them and that brings the wick up and down. And the picture I got was was you all at this point in life, and, and really I, I think about myself when I was in my 20s, that that wick was pretty high, and so the flame was pretty bright. You know, but what happens, what life does, is it tends to bring the wick down. And, and you may not burn out or go out, but as that wick comes down, the flame gets smaller. And I know an awful lot of adults my age, as opposed to adults your age, I know an awful lot where the... The wick's down really low. There's oil, and, and, and there's a flame, but the flame's very, very minimal. And part of what Connect, I believe, is about is filling you so full of oil that you can't, you can't bring that wick down, that you got to burn. you just got to keep burning bright. And it doesn't matter if you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. You, you burn for the Lord. I do know people like Jim and Sandra who the wick tends to be pretty high. You know, I, I know people at all walks of life, all stages of life, who are burning bright for Jesus, but it just seems to be fewer and fewer the older you get. And my hope, my prayer for you is, even as we're talking tonight about faith, that you will have a faith that you are not ashamed of. A faith that you are never afraid to let burn. A faith that says, man, when I'm in worship, I don't care if I'm a 90-year-old great-great-grandmother, my hands are going up, you know, because it's me and my Jesus. A faith that is not afraid. Um, we're going to be in Hebrews 11. I, I do have a question. I, have I haven't even taught you anything and you have a question, Santiago. Why, or I don't know if it's just me or the impression, why over the ages uh, most of the people tend to harden their heart? Like the most like closed people that I know, like when you talk about the gospel or son in general, they're the like people who are 30, 40, 50s, mm-hmm. they're even more more close. Why, why, do, why does that happen? Well, I, I, I mean, there are any number of reasons. We know physically as we get older, things tend to harden up. 
you know, our bodies aren't as flexible as they used to be. And that same thing happens spiritually as well. And the only way to maintain that flexibility and that, that brightness and that alertness is to stay in the spirit. You know, to be focused on spiritual things and, and talk about spiritual things. Life comes rushing in. And the longer you live, the more it rushes in, the more the responsibilities. And my wife right now, it, it, she's having a root. She was just, just calling me. She's having a hard time because she's down there in California till Tuesday. Her grandmother is very close to death and keeps looking at her and saying, can you just stay with me? Can you just stay with me? And she's got to come back. I mean, she's got kids and she has her husband. She has life and, we have, and we're leaving for Israel in four weeks. I mean, we got all kinds of things going on. And when you are not focused on the Spirit... And when you're not walking with Jesus, or when perhaps you only walk with Him on Sundays, then all the in-between gets more and more demanding. That's what life does. The older you get, the more demanding it gets. You know, um, And so I think that wears on people. And it's easy to say, oh, well... You know, life's been demanding this week, so I'm going to take a break. I'm kind of tired. I'm not going to join with other Christians, and, and, and that'll happen. Or, or people will say, I'm just so tired. I used to read my Bible every night, but I get so tired now that, you know, an hour before bed, all I can do is stare at Netflix and then fall asleep. Life hardens people. It just kind of has that pattern. Um, doesn't have to, though. And like I said, those, those believers, 40s, 50s, 60s, who are passionate about Jesus are those who are intentional to be in prayer, to, to be around other believers, and, and not, to be, uh, not to be cautious with their faith. And we're going to talk about that kind of person because they are all over Hebrews chapter 11. This is the, the faith chapter. We're actually going to start this here at the bridge. We'll start it, our, our uh, first run at chapter 11 is going to be Sunday morning. Chapter 11 has been called the Great Hall of Faith. And I really like that picture because it's a listing, first of all, of 16 historical characters are named in Hebrews chapter 11. And then there's a whole bunch of unnamed historical figures as well that some we can figure out because of the description of what happened to them or, or what they went through. Others, we're not so sure, but, but there are all these anonymous heroes who, along with the 16 people who are named, these anonymous heroes deserve to have their portraits hung up in the Great Hall as well. And so, there, But there's not time. You'll see this. In fact, let, let's pick up in verse 32. I'm jumping ahead, and we're not going to start in verse 1. We'll do verses 1 through 6 if you're here Sunday morning, or would like to come Sunday morning, we're going to go back and really kind of walk through it starting then. But for tonight, as I was reading ahead, I thought, i, I got to share this tonight. So you guys are getting the preview. Some of you, by the way, how many of you uh, were in Glenn's Bible study when he took his group through Hebrews? One, two, three, four, five, six, about six years. So, okay. Um, you're not going to hear the same stuff. Partially because Glenn doesn't know what he's talking about, but also, <laughs> no, don't, trust me, that's that is recorded right there. Is there? You just rock Joel's world. <laughs> I would only say that about Glenn if it was true. I mean, I mean, if I love Glenn. Glenn is a scholar. He loves the Lord, and he's spot on. We've been having some great conversations though about just you know what he taught, and what I'm teaching, and 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 they have not been in contrast or in contradiction to each other, but just things that. That he like Wednesday night he goes, you, you, you shared this da, 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 about this and he goes, I 
didn't even see that. And I'm like, well, damn, because it's a, because the word is living and active. It's not because Rick found something you didn't find. It's because the word is living and active. I can teach this right now to you tonight. And on Wednesday night, when we go over these same verses, it will be different. And it's not because I learned something that I didn't know. Well, yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> but it's not because I'm brighter than I was, you know, oh, now I figured it out. No, the word is living and active. It's always dynamic. It's always new and fresh. And so uh, we'll see if there's some things maybe you hear tonight that, that you haven't heard. But picking up in verse 32, he says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak, it's not Obama, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. The women received their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned, and they were sawn in two, and they were tempted, and they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy. And the word men there is added in by the translators. So it's all these people of faith. Not just the men. It's all these people of faith that have been listed throughout the entire chapter, which includes women like Rahab and Sarah, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Interesting. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Some say faith is blind. No doubt you've heard that. Others say faith is a leap. Take a leap of faith. Got to step out, you know. Others will say that it's a crutch. There are those who are really harsh on people of faith. Talking about faith as a leap, I, I think about it. I never forget this fact. Every time I, I'm in Hebrews 11, I think of the scene from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You know, the leap from the lion's mouth. And what a stupid scene that is. Because it's like all of a sudden, Indiana Jones, who is not a faithful man of any stretch, all of a sudden has a moment of like an epiphany of faith. You know, as he's standing there at that gap and he's supposed to get across this ravine, and if you've seen the movie, you know that you know what I'm talking about. And 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 he's reading his little journal, he's okay, gotta make it for the leap from the lion's mouth, and he looks out and says, There's no way, you can't I can't jump that. And then he puts his hand on his heart, breathes, sticks his leg out and steps forward, which is as stupid a thing as anybody has ever done. Just dumb. What are you doing? That's just that's not faith. That's stupidity. Now it just so happens that there's that pathway that's painted, you know, like the other side of the ravine, so he couldn't see it, but it was there, and his foot goes dunk. And he's like, oh <laughs> you know, and throws the sand out there and realizes he's got a path to walk across. And that's Hollywood's version of faith. That's the faith of the world. That's the faith of the world. I'm just gonna step out. It's a leap. Well, that's not faith. That's not the faith that the Bible describes. 
And I will talk more about that on Sunday morning. But the faith that the Bible describes is, is real. And it's based in truth. And it's solid. It's not this, oh, close your eyes and take a leap. The world also says things like this. Archie Bunker, famous sitcom curmudgeon from the old show All in the Family, he said, faith is something nobody in their right mind would believe. Okay. Friedrich Nietzsche, if you want to get a little more philosophical, said a casual stroll through the lunatic asylum shows that faith does not prove anything. Faith is not wanting to know what is true. How about atheist Christopher Hitchens who said, of all the supposed virtues, faith must be the most overrated. And then atheist Richard Dawkins said, faith is one of the world's great evils. He calls it the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. When you know what the Bible says, faith, verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Now after visiting portrait after portrait after portrait, which is what happens here in Hebrews 11, you almost get the sense that you're walking with this pastor, this writer of the Hebrew letter, you're walking down this hallway, and he says, now I want you to look over here. Look at Abel. Look at Enoch. Oh, look at Abraham. Consider Moses. Look at Sarah. He goes down, and you're going picture to picture to picture. And he paints all of these, and they're marvelous, because these are not idiots. These are bright people. These are intelligent individuals. And he writes down in verse 32, And what more shall I say? In other words, need I go on? How many of these pictures of of these people do you need to look at? Sound-minded, intelligent. These were builders. They were leaders. They were uh, wives. They were princes. They were rulers, um, managers, captains, judges. These are sharp individuals that he's, that he's pointing out. These are not just bumpkins. And he goes through one after another. There's even a prostitute in there, by the way. I'm going to talk about that a week from Sunday. That's an interesting one. But all these people of faith, and you know what this word calls these people of faith? Down in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. Every single one of these named and anonymous, came to realize the truest worth that a man or a woman could realize. By faith, they found value. I mean, real value. Not the empty value of the world. Not the stuff that you see pinned up in the, in the newspapers or on the internet. Real value. Why? Because they were, and this is kind of the, the buzzword that I've been thinking about with this teaching tonight, they were pre-approved. Pre-approved. They had pre-approval. Walk this through with me for a minute. For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Now, that would probably be Daniel, you think? quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received their dead by resurrection. And I read all of that and I go, okay, yeah, I want all of that. That's cool. That's faith. 
And we can very easily look at the description there from verse 32 through about the beginning of verse 35 and go, that, that's faith. And today, and in the last couple of decades, there's a movement in Christianity, the Word of Faith movement, the faith healing movement, uh, name it, claim it, prosperity gospel kind of movement. And there are those still preaching this today, and, and they will say, all of these, this is, all you gotta do is name it and you get this. You know, you, you can have these things, you can experience these great victories, all you gotta do is claim it. All you have to do is have enough faith for it. The problem with that mentality is you, you can't just stop there. You have to keep going. And you have to continue in verse 35 where he says, others were tortured. Okay, do you have faith for that? Uh, others were not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, chains and imprisonment. Well, didn't they have enough faith? No, I would submit to you they had faith for chains and imprisonment and scourging and mocking. That's what their faith yielded. (laughs) That's what their faith brought. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Sawn in two, that was Isaiah. At the command of the evil king Manasseh, he was put into a hollow log and they sawed right through it. That's how Isaiah died. They were put to death with the sword and went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Man, don't, don't ascribe that to old, dusty, ancient history. These were real people who lost everything. Now, I, I would like to see someone in the Word of Faith movement explain to me how these people of great faith lost everything, didn't gain anything by their faith. They lost everything and became destitute because they had faith in God. Faith is bigger than your circumstances. Faith is bigger than what it yields you in the moment, in this life. Faith is is the stuff of the eternal, not the stuff of the immediate. And then he says this, the world was not worthy. I think what he's saying is the world was not worthy of these, that is, the latter group. it, It spills out to everybody, but really when he starts getting into those who are Imprisoned and stoned and sawn into and destitute and, and, you know, basically just their lives destroyed. He says the world was not worthy of them. The ones who received nothing for their faith. Now this is a hard sell. In fact, probably wouldn't be the best night to bring a friend to connect, you know. (laughs) The hard sell of faith is saying, hey, come to faith in Jesus, believe in Him, and it may ruin you. It could destroy your life. This life, your temporary, fleshly, mortal life. You could be like, I I don't know if I mentioned in here before, but you could be like my grandmother, who spent the last 16 years of her life flat on her back because she had a tumor in her spinal cord. And she became paralyzed from the neck down. 16 years she lay in bed until she died. And I don't know very many people who have that kind of faith. So, faith is, is bigger than, than the idea that, that sometimes even we see in the church. The thing that connects all of these people of faith in God through Jesus Christ, regardless of the condition of their lives, is what we see in verse 39. And all these having gained approval through their faith. Okay, All these were pre-approved. All these realized at a moment in time when they came to faith in God, 
that they were approved. And once they got that pre-approval, it, it didn't matter anymore to them whether the lives were down in the dumps or pie in the sky. It didn't matter if things were going well or things were going horribly. The promise was theirs. Pre-approved. I've got it. Now, yes? Okay, you're using the word pre-approved here, and I'm just confused about why you're using that word instead of approved. I will tell you why. That, actually, great question. Why am I saying pre-approved? Look at the last part of the verse. And did not receive what was promised. So they had the approval, but not the fulfillment of it. Pre-approval says, like for example, you go for a car loan and they say you're pre-approved. Well, that means the bank's saying, we'll, we'll give you a loan for this car. You've got it. But you don't have it until you actually get the check and hand it to the car place and get the car. Well, now the pre-approval has been fulfilled. All of these had the, they had the approval of God, but not the promise that it pointed to. Listen more. We'll take this a little further. I, in fact, I got an email today telling me that my wife and I have been pre-approved for our uh, TSA pre-check. Very excited about this. <laughs> it's a good thing. Now, I've, I've heard that it is, but you pay 85 bucks, you go and you get your little pre-check, and then when you go to the airport to get on a flight, you get to go right into the pre-check line and, and you're done. You don't have to wait with all the other people who didn't want to do the pre-check. Well, I am pre-approved for the pre-check. It was free for us. Was it free? Not anymore. Not anymore. They figured it out. People were doing it. They're like, hey, we could make something off this. So now you make, yeah. We have 120 days to go now to the enrollment center to complete the process. Now, we've been pre-approved, but if we just show up at the airport right now pre-approved, nothing would happen. We have to have the pre-approvement fulfilled or completed. Okay. The only negative is that being pre-approved, and again, answering your question, is pre-approval tends to indicate something still needs to be done. Now, here's where faith is different. God's pre-approval is better. God's pre-approval is not like the TSA. You may or may not get it. you know, Or the bank that says, for your car, yeah, we pre-approved you. Well, then you come back and say, well, the car I want is actually $85,000. The bank says, you're not pre-approved for that. The difference is with God, you're pre-approved for eternity. And there is nothing left to do. So truly you have approval. You have approval by faith. Though, as with these, they received the approval through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. But what was promised is already approved and will happen, guaranteed, no pulling back. It's a done deal. Which is the great thing about faith is I I can know God has me. He's done it by faith in Jesus. I'm pre-approved. Nothing left to do. There's nothing else I can do but simply believe. Now, I know by saying that, there are those who say, oh, cool, so I can just kick back till Jesus comes. No, you don't understand your pre-approval. If you think that by being approved of God in faith, now... I'm not going to do anything. Well, Rick, you just said there's nothing left to do. I did say that. There's nothing left to do to get your approval. You got it. How'd you get it? I believed. I believed in Jesus Christ as my Lord. So I'm approved. But there's nothing left to do to get that. And yet, and yet my heart wants to do. So the point is this. 
Someone says, if I'm approved, can I kick back until Jesus comes? The answer is, you could, but you won't. You won't. Well, why not? Because the more you know Him, the more you want to do for Him. The more you understand your pre-approval, your approval in Jesus, to be fulfilled when He calls us home in its completion, the more you understand that, the more you want to do. Someone may say, James wrote in James 2.18, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. He said in verse 26, Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. I like to put it this way, faith works. I mean, it really works. It's not that you prove your faith, it's that you have been approved by God, and what your faith does is it begins to work in you. It begins to change your behavior. It changes your thinking. It shifts your focus in life. That's what faith does. And the more right now, going back to the oil lamp analogy, the more you feed your faith with the oil of the Spirit now, the more soaked you are by the Spirit now, the more faith will work in your life so much that you can't stop it from working in your life. Even age won't do it. The heart won't get harder. You know, you won't get all stiff in your muscles, spiritually speaking. You'll continue to grow. Your passion will get greater. Hitchens, Dawkins, and their atheist counterparts have a deep and abiding faith. That in, in something that's unseen. And this is what's funny to me. Faith works in you. You know everybody has faith. There's really no such thing as the non-believer. The question is, what do people believe in? There are the believers in Jesus, and then there are the believers in self. There are believers in atheism. Atheism is a faith. It has to be a faith. I mean, think about this. Atheists reject the notion that God exists, Right? How can they do that except on faith? Because the only way you could really say God doesn't exist is you would have to be omniscient and omnipresent. You would have to be in every single place at once because you might be over here and God's over there and you just missed Him and you think there's no God. So the only way you can truly be an atheist is to have faith that God does not exist. It's still faith. That's stupid faith, by the way. You know, Dawkins telling us that, that faith doesn't count for anything. I, that's just ridiculous to me. Well, he has faith in that. <laughs> he does. He has faith in nothing. You have faith in something if your faith is in Jesus Christ. But I'm, I'm more concerned with the faith that, that is true. And my iPad is just wigging. There we go. The faith specifically that worked in all of these heroes. And the way John describes it, when you look at these people and think about them, he says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. 1 John 5, verse 4. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. For some, that overcoming faith, what we see in verses 33 through 35, it's victory in light of their circumstances. That is, they experience victory right now, then and there. Faith in God, and they put armies to flight. Faith in God, and they quench the power of fire. Faith in God, and they shut the mouths of lions. And so they had faith, and there was an immediate, wonderful outcome for it. But then there's also those that, for them, faith is victory in spite of their circumstances. You're destitute. doesn't matter. 
faith is there. You know? Someone's stoned to death, but hey, he had faith. And someone's sawn in two. Faith. So again, faith doesn't guarantee immediate escape from your circumstance. And that's something to learn and understand right now early on. You can say, but God, I'm trusting you. Why are you allowing this to happen? Hey, if you trust Him, it doesn't matter whether the outcome is good or bad. Because He's got a bigger picture. He's got something far more wonderful that is taking place. I guarantee you it's good, even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when it's very messy in the moment, it's still going to yield an amazing outcome. We just can't see it yet. That's faith coming in. It doesn't guarantee immediate escape. It doesn't guarantee rescue. It doesn't guarantee deliverance right now. Let me put it this way. Some Christians get sick, they face hardship, they pray hard, and they are supernaturally rescued. And we've seen that. People who are healed of things they should not be healed of. Miraculous supernatural things taking place. And we say, wow, see that's the outcome of faith. Here's another way to put it. There are other Christians who get sick, face hardship, pray hard, and remain in pain. Or die. And some actually have the audacity to say, well, they just must not have had enough faith. Really? Okay. In John 5, Jesus healed a lame man by the pool of Bethesda. Some of you remember the story. He goes there and it's this pool. And the, John 5 tells us there was a multitude of sick people all around the pool and Jesus healed one. What about all the rest of them? Are you telling me there wasn't anyone else around the pool who actually had faith? I submit that there were faithful people there waiting to be healed. Jesus healed one and left. Why didn't he, Jesus just heal them all? Or call out, hey, raise your hand if you have faith. You know, and then bing, 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 and just heal them all and be done. He could have. He has the power. Or think about this, Acts chapter 3. Peter and John healed another lame man by the beautiful gate. They're coming into Jerusalem. They heal him. Fantastic. It's a marvelous moment. You find out later in Acts chapter 4 that this lame man had been lame from his, from his mother's womb and that he was over 40 years old. You know what that means? It means Jesus walked by that lame man every time he came into Jerusalem and never healed him. Well, that's not fair. Did he, did he not have enough faith? Paul had a thorn. Timothy had a tummy ache. And I had diverticulitis and God never healed that. Do we just not have enough faith? The problem must be with the person. And I'll tell you, based on what I read in Scripture, that's not true. That's not true. Faith is trusting Jesus no matter what the circumstance. And it doesn't matter if life gets better or worse. Faith is, I'm trusting Him. And and I'm going to walk through this. Jim's had the kidney issue now for how long? That you've been aware of it? Eight to ten years. Eight to ten years. Don't you have enough faith? You see what I'm saying? I, I and, and I'm not I'm not just saying this because Jim's my friend and my brother. But I don't know very many people with as much faith. See, Jim's one of these guys who the wick's pretty high. 
And it has been ever since I met him in Sander, the wick is he's burning and he's, you know, Lord, what do you want? And he's always focused on what Jesus wants to do. What, doesn't he have enough faith? Now see, that would rattle the rest of us around him going, he's been praying for eight to ten years for God to heal him. God's not. Hmm. Maybe Jim just doesn't have enough faith. Wrong. No. No. Jim was pre-approved the moment he gave his life to Jesus Christ. I say pre-approved, I mean approved without the completion of that, the absolute fulfillment, because honestly, we'll know we're approved when we're standing before Jesus in the clouds. In that moment, everything, no question, it's all done. Even though it already was done at Calvary 2,000 years ago. But again, back to verse 39, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. Why? Because God had provided something better for us. So that apart from us, they would not be made complete. So again, faith is not bound in your immediate circumstance. It looks to God for future deliverance. Jesus said in Luke 21.36, Keep on the alert at all times. Why? Because that feeds your faith. Praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. In John 16, verse 32, Jesus said, Behold, an hour is coming, and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. This is Thursday night. This is the night of his betrayal. And he's talking to the apostles here. He says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world, he says wonderfully. You know what happened next? Let me read it to you. John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the ravine of the Kedron, where there was a garden which He entered with His disciples. And Judas also, who was betraying Him, knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon Him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. And Judas, who was betraying him, was standing with him. And when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's what happens when God talks. Therefore he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. I mean, I just see him shaking. And he answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he had spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. Simon Peter then having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. Slave's name was Malchus. Luke tells us Jesus picked up the ear and put it back on his head. I love that John tells us his name was Malchus. That indicates that this guy ended up hearing the Lord. And getting saved. Thank you, Connie. (laughs) So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. You know the rest of the story. He was dragged before Annas. He was dragged before Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate. Six unjust and illegal trials overnight until finally they let him out to the cross to be crucified. And right before this, he said, take courage, I've overcome the world. Well, that doesn't look like overcoming. At least not on this side of the cross, that side of the cross. On this side, we know that He overcame the world. 
But on that side, we see Jesus on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. That's Psalm 22, verse 1, which he quoted from the cross. It was one of the last things he said. So I ask you this, in this context of faith, was Jesus forsaken? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People love to take that phrase and say, Jesus in that moment was separated from the Father. Because He said, you've forsaken me. So in that moment, God couldn't look at sin, so He turned His back on Jesus. I don't know. I don't know that that's what happened. I think... Instead, what was going on is Jesus' flesh cried out and led us directly to Psalm 22. Why would He do that? So that we could know in the moment of His crucifixion that this was something that had been laid in a thousand years earlier. This is all part of the plan. Jesus is declaring this is the fulfillment of David's prophecy in Psalm 22. The plan unfolding on Calvary was not Christ forsaken, it was history in the making. We can go all the way back to the foundations of the earth. Revelation 13.8 says the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. It's always been the plan of God. What are you saying? I'm saying your life has always had a full plan that you don't necessarily see the end of. And there are moments in your life you feel forsaken. Faith knows the character of God. Faith says, God does not forsake. I feel forsaken. I feel alone. I feel lost in this situation. God does not forsake. I'm going to trust in God and not my circumstances. I'm going to trust in God and not in myself. I've said many times recently, some of you have heard this, when I look at me, I question my salvation. When my eyes are on myself, I question my salvation because (laughs) I know myself. But when my eyes are on Jesus, I question nothing. When I'm looking to Him, it's certain. It's absolute. It's secure. Back to Hebrews one more time. Having gained approval through their faith, these did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect or literally made complete. Faith then is sunk deep into the security of a better promise by a better Savior. Faith is secured, again, not in my ability to keep faith even, Or my ability to see the end game, although God has shown it to us. My faith is secured in who God is. In who Jesus is. And so the question is very simple. Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him? When things go wrong, do you trust Him? When life is hard, do you trust Him? When you feel all alone, do you trust Him? When temptation comes... Do you trust Him? When doubts or fears arise, answers are distant or vague, when emotions are running high, do you trust Him? That's the question of faith. You already have pre-approval. Now we're just waiting on the promise. Nietzsche, Hitchens, Dawkins, I would tell them, faith is no cop-out, it's the only way out. 
And I mean out of here. Jesus said in John 14.3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And He said, You know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know where You're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, And you know the verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. We have something, by the way, that all the heroes of faith that are listed in Hebrews 11 did not have. Verse 1 of chapter 12, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We have two things. We have a great cloud of witnesses. Now I go back to what I said before. Think about who these witnesses were. These were smart people. These were educated people. These include people, you know, including Joseph listed here, who was number two in the rule over all of Egypt. He was not an idiot. He was a man of great learning and skill and expertise and a man of incredible faith. He trusted. That's the kind of people that we have all around us and down through history. And what the Hebrew writer here does is he says, look, you're surrounded by intelligent, well-thought, experienced people of faith. So if you're struggling, look at them. In fact, I would tell you, if you're ever struggling in faith in your life, go to Hebrews 11 and walk the hall. And look at the portraits. And think about what these people did. And remember, they were no different than you. They, they live life at perhaps a different time in history, but they were human just like you. They had the same types of temptations, the same challenges, and look at what happened. How did they get there? Faith. Faith, not some ability of their own. They just trusted God. We have a great crowd, a cloud of witnesses, and and... He says, let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. See, I don't even perfect my faith. I just keep looking at Him. And as I look at Him, and as I say, I'm putting my trust in Him, He develops, He perfects, He grows and strengthens my faith. I just keep looking at Him. And faith gets stronger. Which should tell us something, when we try to perfect our faith, we're going to mess it up. We try to build our faith. No, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Just focus on the character and the nature of God. And not only do we have this great cloud of witnesses, but we have the cross, the tomb, and the sky, all that testify. All of what Jesus did, and that He will follow through in everything that He promised to do. So my advice to you tonight, if I may give some, is if you're struggling with faith... First, pray. Pray the prayer of the man whose son was demon-possessed. Didn't know what to do. Cried out to Jesus, Mark chapter 9, if you can help us. And Jesus said, if? (laughs) If? And the man quickly said, I believe, help my unbelief. Great prayer to pray. Pray, help my unbelief. Give me faith, Lord. I'm struggling here. Give me faith. Pray first. And then come walk the hall. And consider what life is like, both good and bad, for those who have faith. And then ask yourself one question. Do you trust Him? 
Father, I, I trust you. The Father for each one of us, and I don't know where each of my brothers and sisters are at tonight, but I suspect there are things, there are issues, there are problems, there are challenges, there are struggles in life unique to each and every one of us. Father, I ask you to increase our faith, not in ourselves, not in our ability to keep even your word, Father. Increase our faith in you. Help us to trust you more. And Father, I pray over this group, and even for those who are not able to be with us here tonight, that you will make them to shine. That the wick will be high and the flame will be bright until Jesus comes to take us home. In Jesus' name, amen.